turn your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark. We continue our series on Sunday mornings in the Servant Savior out of Mark. We turn a chapter this morning. We are making our way through this entire book, but we turn a chapter to chapter number 9 this morning. A wonderful passage of Scripture, tremendous passage of Scripture. And I entitled our time together in the Bible this morning, A Sight to Behold, A Sight to Behold. Uh, speaking of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Uh, Mark chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 9. Caleb read the account of this passage uh, out of Matthew's gospel. It's also found in Luke chapter number 9. So if you want to find that as well, we will be looking at that in just a little bit. But we will look at it in all three accounts this morning. Mark chapter 9. And he said to them, Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said, uh, excuse me, and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias, for he wist not What to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And suddenly, when they looked around about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man was risen from the dead. Let's bow our hearts in a word of prayer. Father, would you bless the preaching of your word this morning? We know that it's true. We, this is a living word. So, Lord, may it come to life, not only in our hearing, but in our living. Mold us into your image today. And, Lord, we ask that your power would be shown forth. Lord, save souls. Draw all men to yourself. Equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Encourage hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This morning, we come to this passage of Scripture. And and it's one of the most fascinating passages of Scripture. One of the most fascinating times in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. As he walked upon planet earth. It's a... Beginning in the latter part of chapter 8 and into this passage, we now begin seeing a really a drastic turning point. Jesus is making a beeline, if you will. He's making a, his headway towards Jerusalem where he would one day, very soon from this passage here, it would just be a number of months where Jesus would now be hanging upon a cross. And he now is teaching his disciples the importance of this. And they still haven't gotten it all. And they're still... Uh, not sure of how to take it all in and how to figure it all out. And Jesus is teaching them. But it's a fascinating passage of Scripture. The transfiguration 
of Jesus Christ. I mentioned it's recorded in three of the four Gospels, Mark, Luke, and in Matthew. The word transfigure is, this is a no-brainer, it means to transform. Transfigured, transform. It's a word that we get our word from. It's a word that originated from the word metamorphosis. It's where we come with the idea of changing, metamorphosis. Only four times in our King James Bible, in Mark and in Matthew, do we see the word transfigured in this particular passage and in another instance in Mark that Caleb read earlier. The same word is translated changed. Uh, let me read you a passage, 2 Corinthians 3 and 18. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed, transfigured, metamorphosis, changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. So here we see the transfiguration of Jesus in the passage out of the Gospels. But in this particular passage, it's talking about a change that takes place within us. Uh, that transfiguration. But not quite the same as we see it here with Christ. But there is a change that takes place. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we go forward. We find it also uh, translated another way. Out of Romans chapter 12 and verse number 2. Very familiar passage of scripture. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. That's the word, transfigured. Be transformed, how? By the renewing of the mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Metamorphosis. Changed. Transformed. Transfigured. This transfiguration of Jesus... It takes place uh, just six days after a discussion between the Jews, uh, excuse me, between Jesus and the disciples. Uh, and, and if you'll recall, and it won't take time to go through it all, but we go back to Mark chapter number 8, and Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? And so in this discussion, uh, the answers are given, well, some are saying, Lord, some are guessing your identity as some are saying, well, you're one of the prophets, uh, you're this or you're that and this particular individual or that particular individual. And, and Jesus asks Peter straight up, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds by saying, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter gets it right. He nails it. In this particular situation. Um, in all the teaching and all the pouring of his life into these disciples. Now they have come to the position and the understanding and the conviction of who Jesus is. And Peter was convinced about the identity of Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the King. He is deity in the flesh. And Peter had the identity of Jesus right. But... What he did not yet understand was the purpose of Jesus. He had the identity, but he didn't quite get and understand the purpose of why he had come. If you go back and look at chapter 8, verses 31 through 33, to lay a background for our passage that we read 
with regards to the transfiguration. Chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. And he began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. And when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. So while he got the identity of Jesus right, he was still not, and he was cross purposes, if you will. He still didn't have an understanding of the purpose of why Jesus had come. The disciples had not yet come to an understanding of the gospel message. The gospel message, verse number 35. For whosoever shall save his life, excuse me, for whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels. They understood the identity of Jesus, but they didn't understand the gospel. They hadn't quite come to the place of, of, of the mindset, the, the message of the gospel, which is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They had some things right, but they were still trying to figure other things as they went forward. And Peter and the other disciples, they certainly, they wanted a kingdom. They were all for Jesus uh, establishing an earthly kingdom. And all the Jews, the believers in Christ, would have wanted that. And that's what they were looking for, a kingdom to come. Here on earth, they wanted God's kingdom to be established here on earth. And they wanted that kingdom to be established here and now. And so for now, Jesus to be talking about dying, uh, this would have been, what's going on here? Where where are we going with this kingdom? Uh, What's going to take place next? They were already, the Bible tells us there already had been some arguing and discussion among themselves as to, Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Look at chapter 9 and verse number 34. But they held their peace for they, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. Jesus asked them in this prior passage in the verse before that, what were you discussing as we were walking by the way? And of course Jesus knew, but they were discussing among themselves who's going to be the greatest when this kingdom takes place. So they're looking for a kingdom in the here and now, and Jesus has other plans. In Matthew chapter 20, in verse number 21, the mother of James and John, hoping to get a leg up uh, for her boys, uh, they, she goes right to Jesus, and she flat out, flat out asks the question, Grant that these my two sons may sit, one on the right and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. They're all looking for a kingdom. Who's, who, let's jockey for position in that kingdom. Uh, he's going to overthrow Rome. And uh, we're going to finally get this national kingdom that we're looking for. Grant that my two sons will uh, be in the, uh, a prominent place in the kingdom. They certainly wanted a kingdom. But Jesus first had a cross. And that's what they were missing. 
he had a cross that he would carry up Calvary. There was a cross that he would be nailed to. A cross that he would die upon. And praise the Lord, the third day, rise again. They were anticipating the glory of a kingdom. A kingdom here on earth. But Jesus was telling them that the glory first must come by way of a cross. It must first come by way of the cross. He must first suffer and be rejected. He must first be killed and then rise again. No doubt these disciples, uh, they, they were thinking, uh, we just confessed as to who Jesus is. Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We've just confessed and we believe who He is. We believe all these things. This is amazing. This is glorious in and of Himself. But now He's talking about His death. What's this all about? There's no glory in death. This is only defeat. Death, this is only losing. It's loss, it seems. Jesus now is now talking about not only his death, but in the passage that we noted last week, he's also talking about them taking up a cross as well. You must take up a cross and follow me. If you're going to be my disciple, you're going to have to take up a cross. Wait a minute, where's the kingdom? Where's the the prominence in, in the kingdom? Where's our positions in all of this? And Jesus is talking about not only death for himself, but a cross for those who would follow after him. And certainly these things were devastating. They were, it was crushing news. How can this thing be? There'll never be a kingdom. In their minds, there'll never be the kingdom. There'll never be a glory. Because Jesus is talking about dying. But Jesus responds to their distraught hearts and minds in verse number 1. Notice verse number 1 of chapter number 9. And he uses the word verily. In other words, pay attention here. Verily I say unto you, that there shall be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Jesus here is in essence saying, Men, I know that you're looking for a kingdom and all the glory that's going to come with that kingdom. But I, I, I want to give you a preview in, in, of, a, of another kingdom, not what you're looking for. I want to give you a preview, a glimpse of real glory. I want to give you a preview and a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven, of God's glory. Uh, the glory that was. The glory that is, and the glory that shall forever be. Uh, Men, I I, want to give you a foretaste of glory divine. Men, I want to show you a kingdom that's more than a national kingdom. More than a kingdom of a nation. Even more than a worldwide kingdom. Because at that time, the Romans ruled the world. I want to show you a glory of a kingdom that's more than worldwide. There's a kingdom that's universal. There's a kingdom that's unshakable. There's a kingdom that's eternal. Whose glory is more splendid than anything you've ever imagined. It could ever even think of. God says, I want to show you a glimpse 
of the glory that shall be after the cross. The glory that is now, but if yet veiled in Jesus Christ. And my death upon the cross is not going to end it all. But my death upon the cross is literally going to express it all. And show forth it all. The kingdom of God come with power. That's what he says to them. There'll be some standing here that will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God come with power. I want you to notice out of this verse number one, first of all, a promise of a preview. A promise of a preview. And that's what Jesus says to them. A promise of a preview. He's promising them a taste of glory divine. Now some of them stood there that was hearing Jesus teach. Talking about the cross, talking about the disciples taking up a cross. They would also be alive. They would not die. They would not pass away till they have seen the glory that Jesus is speaking of. And that promise would take place a week later. A week later. Turn with me to the Gospel's account, to Luke's account of this in the, the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 9. Luke chapter number 9. And here we'll spend the rest of our time this morning looking at this account from Luke's perspective. Luke chapter 9 verses 27 through 35. And here in Luke's perspective, in Luke's account, we get a few extra details that are given. um, That we don't necessarily may not find in Matthew and Mark. But it doesn't mean that uh, there's anything different here. It's just like if you were a witness to a... Something that took place and you were standing on one corner. Someone else is standing on another corner. You may see it in a different fashion. You may write it in a different specific way. You're playing on a ball field and uh, these baseball players and, and, and someone goes to swing at a ball. And he comes a half swing and that, that umpire at the first pl- at behind the plate, he can't really see it all. So he refers to the guy at first place or the guy on third base. And he says, did he go all the way around, yes or no? And this is kind of what we see out of the Gospels. We see the same truth being taught and being conveyed from different perspectives according to the Word of God and the way that the Holy Spirit designed it. So we come to this passage out of Mark's Gospel. First of all, we read, I want you to see out of verses 27 and 28. And I tell you the truth that I shall... Be some standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up to a high mountain to pray. Now, some would say, well, there's a contradiction. I thought the other passages said six days, and now this one says eight days. There's no contradiction here. There's been six days that's passed, but if you add the day that Jesus made the promise, that's seven, and the day that it took place, that's eight. There's no contradiction at all in this passage of Scripture. And by the way, there's no contradiction at all in the Word of God. So we see here a particular group. Jesus gives the promise of a preview, and he he takes apart and he pulls apart a particular group. He took Peter, James, and John. It's often been said these are the inner circle of Jesus. Peter and John, as well as James, would write New Testament books of the Bible. They would be with him in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus goes and he prays before the cross. 
James would be the leader of the New Testament church in the book of Acts. And he would be the one that would lead that early church forward. Uh, these were reliable witnesses. Why these? They were reliable witnesses. Matthew 18 and 16. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. They were reliable witnesses. So we see a particular group. Jesus pulls these men aside and he says, let's go to a mountain. Not only we see a particular group, but notice with me, secondly, a prayerful attitude. A prayerful attitude. He takes them up on this high mountain. And notice what they do. And they went up into the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, they went up into a mountain to pray. A prayerful attitude. The glory of God was manifested in a prayer meeting. He says out of verse number 28. And it came to pass... Uh, let me see, any truth, where am I at? I've lost my place, forgive me. Verses 27 and 28. It came to pass in eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and James and went up to a high mountain to pray. And as he prayed, that's where I'm after, verse 29. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistering. So this was a prayer meeting. Prayer meeting. The glory of God was manifested in and during a prayer meeting. Notice it was not a praise and worship session. That the glory of God was manifested in. There's no speaking in tongues in this particular passage. The glory of God was not manifested in that kind of thing. There's no praise team out front. There's no interpretive dance going on. There's no uh, fog machines uh, putting out smoke into the room. They didn't dim the lights. There's no blaring electric guitars. No drum sets. Uh, there's no colored stage lighting for effect. There's no 7-Eleven songs. There's no, uh, nobody screaming uh, with a microphone in his hand. It's just a prayer meeting. It's just a prayer meeting. Gathering alone. God's people gathering along with God, fellowshipping with God. I think this is amazing. Uh, here they are praying. Here they are meeting with God in a prayer meeting and God shows up. It's been noted that every revival of the past that ever shook nations and continents for God started in a prayer meeting somewhere. This is amazing. A praise and worship team may entertain and draw a crowd, but a prayer meeting is where God intervenes and the glory is most often seen. We see a particular group. We say, see a prayerful attitude. But I want you to notice what takes place when God shows up. In verse number 29, we just read it. And as they prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. Um, the idea of glistering there is literally like lightning. You've seen lightning flash across the sky, and you say, wow, did you see that? This was the idea of what's taking place in the light that's been seen here. Mark says, it's exceedingly White as snow. No fuller on earth can white. In other words, there's no launderer who could ever get whiter than this white right here. Matthew said his face did shine as the sun. His raiment as white as light. 
this was, understand, sometimes we may get the impression in theatrics that, that if they want light to shine, that they'll put a big bright light behind the character so that it looks like there's a light behind them. And so the light behind them is what is shining. Understand, this is nothing like that at all. Here's Jesus. In his transfiguration, the light is literally within him. And it's being exposed from within outward. It's not a light shining upon him. It is who he is himself. It is the Shekinah glory of God. The same glory. It's the same glory that knocked Paul to the ground and blinded him on the road to Damascus. It's the same glory that, that Moses got a glimpse of on Mount Sinai. And he, and he put, his, uh, put him in the cleft of the rock and he, and he hid his face. And when Moses came down upon, off the mountain, uh, the people said to Moses, Moses, you need to put something over your face. We can't look upon you. It was not the glory of Moses, but it was the glory of God that he'd been in the presence of. The same Shekinah glory. Jesus did not change understanding to something that he had not been. Rather, he resorted back to what he had always been. His glory, this glory was not a new thing for our Lord. It was rather an eternal glory that has always been. When Jesus came to this earth the first time as a babe in a manger, he veiled that glory so as... You and I could commune with Him. So as these disciples could walk with Him. So as they could understand and see that He is a man just like us. But that glory was veiled. But it was always there. One writer that I read said it this way. The miracle of the transfiguration was not that Jesus' glory was seen. But the miracle that was that His glory was veiled for 33 years up to that point. I think that's amazing. That's the miracle. John 1 and 14. The same John that was up on the mountain there that day of transfiguration wrote, We beheld His glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Glory. What is glory? What is glory? You can describe it many ways. If you look it up in your dictionary... You can come up with different terms. The Greek word is doxa. Glory, splendor, brightness, majesty, perfection, exalted, supreme, excellence. We sing the doxology. We sing of the glory of God. That's what it's about. This is who Jesus is. We sing of His glory. This is an amazing thing to me. But in Hebrew word, you take the Hebrew word for glory. And the Hebrew word carries a, a little different emphasis. And the same thing, but a little different emphasis along with it. The idea of glory in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew word, carries the idea of weightedness. Of heavy. In other words, of importance. The glory of God. Splendor. Perfection. Majesty, weightiness, importance. A glimpse of His glory. Listen, a glimpse of God's glory in our lives. And this is why revival is so needed in our land. A 
glimpse of the glory of God, of His importance, of who He is, will rearrange the important things that we think are so important in our lives. That's why we need a glimpse of God's glory in our day. It will rearrange the things that we say are the important, that we put as importance in our life. The Bible tells us that one day every knee shall bow, every tongue confess His glory, His importance, His preeminence. We see in this transfiguration passage His amazing glory. But notice with me, secondly, not only we see His amazing glory, but notice His atoning death. His atoning death. Verses 30 and 31, And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. There on the mountaintop, as Jesus is transfigured before his disciples, there's Moses and Elias, or Elijah, appear talking with Jesus. This would have been a very important thing for a Jew. They would have seen and understood that Moses and Elijah were representative of all the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets. This was a very important thing for these Jews that were there with Jesus on that day. They were talking to Jesus, and I want you to notice what they were talking about out of verse number 31, the latter part. And spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. They were talking about the cross. They were discussing this matter of the cross. The same cross that Jesus had introduced to his disciples just a few days earlier. Now they're discussing the cross together. Wouldn't you like to have been there that day to hear this conversation? I believe that not only were they discussing, discussing this with our, Lord, with our Lord and Savior, but I, I just got to believe that, that all of heaven was abuzz about this matter. All of heaven, all the angels, all the saints of the Old Testament, all those who were in heaven were talking about the, the coming cross, the time when Jesus would die for sinful man. I believe it was the, the talk of the time. And by, by the way, it will always be. The cross. It will always be the topic of conversation. How did you get to heaven? Well, it was only by way of the cross. How did your sins forgiven? Only by way of the cross. How did Satan become defeated? Only by way of the cross. It's still the topic of conversation today. But they're discussing the cross here. And I would love to have heard uh, what they were saying. And I, and I just... I just can only imagine. Let me give you a couple things that just run through my mind as I study in this passage of Scripture. Well, they're talking about the cross. What were they saying? Maybe Moses was saying, that great leader of the Old Testament in Israel, was saying, Lord, I, I saw your glory in Egypt. I saw your glory in the ten plagues that, that you allowed to come through. And now that you took all the firstborn, except for those who had the blood applied to the doorpost. I saw the glory. Then I saw how you, you brought about the exodus. And by the way, the word decease here literally means exodus. God's exodus. I saw, God, how you brought about your glory as the entire nation gathered together. And those who were once slaves, and now the entire nation is giving of themselves and saying, Here, take this, take this, take this. 
And God, I saw your glory when we got to the edge of that sea and, and Pharaoh was bearing down on our backsides and there was a, this body of water on the front of us and how in the world are we going to get across? And God, I saw your glory as you literally called the, caused the waters to stand up on walls and stand up on edge and every single child of God, every part of the nation of Israel went across that on dry ground. We saw your glory as Pharaoh followed after and the, the walls of water came down. And you wrought a great victory that day. We saw your glory, Lord, in the wilderness. as water. You caused water to come forth out of a rock. And it fed and filled the entire nation. We saw how the manna from heaven in the wilderness and how you cared for your people. And you took care of those all throughout the wilderness. I saw your glory. God, when you gave those commandments and the cleft of the rock, I saw your glory. But this cross, this cross that's ahead of you, this cross that that we find in the Old Testament scriptures, there's never been a glory like this one. We saw it all then, but this glory that's to come is to be the greatest of all. Maybe Elijah Said, so Lord, I saw your glory there on the mountain that day when, when all those 400 prophets of Baal were lined up against you and against me, God's man, for that time. And I saw how in, in prayer, how, Lord, you sent the power of God. You sent fire out of heaven and burn up and consumed the water-soaked sacrifice. How you put out water with fire. God, we saw your glory. We saw those 400 prophets of Baal destroyed, defeated. And wicked Ahab and Jezebel defeated. God, I saw your glory when you caused that widow woman and her son at Zarephath. How that the cruise of oil failed not. And the barrel of meal just kept on going on and on and on. We saw your glory. It was the glory to be caught up. Uh, it, was to be, it was glory to be caught up in a whirlwind, to be taken from this earth into heaven. Uh, all that was glorious. But now we're talking about the cross. All of that was glorious, but the cross ahead is the greatest glory of all. Can't you just imagine the conversation that's taking place? Lord, the angels are talking about it. They don't sure understand it quite yet. How would a king from heaven die for sinful man? They don't quite get it. At the cross, sin was paid for and forgiven. The glory of the cross, paid for and forgiven. At the cross, death, hell, and Satan are forever defeated. The cross is the gospel message. A holy, sinless God paying the sin debt for wicked, sinful men. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What glory is this? The glory of the cross. Lord, we saw your glory in so many splendid ways. But this cross that you're now going to die upon. This cross would open up and pave the way for every man, woman, boy and girl upon planet earth to be born again. Have a relationship with the God of heaven. We see his amazing glory. We see his atoning death. And notice with me lastly, his absolute authority. 
His absolute authority. Verses 32 through 35. Verse number 32. And Peter. But Peter and they that were with him. Were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake. They saw his glory. And the two of the men that stood with him. This I believe is a proof text. That Peter was a Baptist. The Bible tells us that. They were in church and he was heavy with sleep. Surely he was a Baptist. Come to church to get a nap in. Come to church and take a little nap here. He says, they wake, they're awakened in this prayer meeting. They're awakened by the glory of God. And they see, they see Moses and Elias standing there. And he sees the glory of God and 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 the Bible says in verse number 33, And it came to pass as they departed from him. Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let me just say, it's good to be in church. Amen. It is good every time we get together. It is good to be in a prayer meeting. It's good to be around the glory of God. It's good to be in the work of the Lord. He says, it's good for us to be here. And let us make thee Three, make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias, not knowing what he said. Well, Peter gets a lot of bad rap, and we give Peter a hard time for saying a lot of dumb things. I don't know what we'd have said in that particular situation, but you know what I think here? I think Peter, when he woke up in church, he saw the glory of God, and you know what? As it starts to depart, he says, Lord, Can we just bask here a little while? Can we just bask in the glory? Can we just sit here for a little while? Can we just enjoy the presence of God for a little while? I wonder if it was 12 o'clock sharp. I'm going to leave that alone, preacher. You're you're meddling a little bit too much. But he says, you know what? I, I think I'd just like to stare. Lord, how about we build three tabernacles? One for you, one for Moses, one for Elias. Let's just stay here a little while and enjoy the presence of God. And we tend to beat upon him, but he says, it's good for us. Let us make the three tabernacles. But Peter, he, but what Peter's problem was, he says he didn't know what he was saying. What Peter's problem was that he was wanting the kingdom without the cross. That was the thing he was missing. And you know what? We do as well sometimes, don't we? We want all of God's blessings. We want all that God can bestow upon us. But oh, not that cross thing. Not that cross thing that he mentioned back in chapter 8. Whosoever be my disciple, let him take up his cross. Deny himself and follow me. We like the kingdom. Lord, let us stay here. But God says there's work that needs to be done. There's a cross that awaits. I think this is an amazing thing. And let me just mention and go back and mention the fact that Moses and Elijah were there. We've been studying on Wednesday nights, 1 Corinthians, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been in chapter number 15 for week after week, it seems. And this last week, uh, Paul is addressing the subject, uh, if there is to be a resurrection, as some people were denying, if there is to be such a thing, with what kind of body will they have and with how shall they come forth? What kind of body do they have? 
we made the point that, that this will be a glorified body, but the identities of each and every one of us will be intact. Here, this is a proof text for that kind of thing. Moses and Elias are there. Uh, they, these disciples knew who they were. Identity intact. This is an amazing thing. Proof of an eternal presence with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We see an absolute authority. The proof of Peter when he says, Lord, you are the Christ. But then he sees his glory. But then we see, come to this point of verse number 34 and 35. And that's where I want to go with the point. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses, one for Elias, knowing what he said. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Would you mark this in your Bibles, please? Hear him. Hear him. Hear Lord. Hear Christ. Hear him. Absolute authority. The Bible says the next moment they open up their eyes. No one's standing there. It's all gone. No one's standing there. The preview is over. But who's left? It's Jesus Christ. It's the word of God. The living word of God. He says hear him. Absolute authority. In our day, we might say it this way. Turn off the lying news. Shut down the gossip on Facebook. Turn off the devices. And spend time with the living God. Hear Him. Hear Him as He says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Hear Him. Hear him when he says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hear him this morning to be saved. Hear him this morning when he says, I want you to go into the world and preach the gospel. I want you to surrender your life. Well, I got a plan for your life. For your years of your life. I got something special for you. Surrender. Hear ye him. Is Christ speaking to your heart this morning? Do you need to be saved? Hear him this morning. He'll save you. Trust him. Whatever you're going through in life, Jesus is the answer for the struggles, for the sin, for the disappointments, for the fears. Hear him. He's alive and he's well. The preview of his glory. All this will be nothing like when we get to heaven. It's just a preview. But when we get to heaven, it's going to be worth it all when we see Christ. Would you give him your life this morning? Would you be saved? You're here listening by way of the internet this morning, watching by live stream. I ask you and beg you this morning, trust Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Hear him and be saved. Hear him and surrender. Let's bow our hearts in a word of prayer.